Well, good morning. My name is Luke Humphrey, and it is a joy to be with you this morning. It's also a little funny. One of the reasons why it's funny is because the church where I serve as a pastor at, the front row is like prime seating. And there is a great chasm between us. We got like four or five rows going all the way back, so I may just move the pulpit to stand right there to see you all. So you all get the privilege of being part of the front row. But it's a joy to be with you today. Um, in 2017, my wife, uh, Laura, and I, as well as our three kids, May, Carson, and Owen, um, we moved to the United Arab Emirates. So it's a privilege to be one of College Park Fisher's missionaries. I, from 2015 to 2017, did a pastoral residency at the North Indy congregation. In fact, Tim and I were hired within one week of each other. And so we came on. Tim has kept his hair. I have not kept my hair. But we loved being at College Park North Indy. We loved being here at the early days of the Fishers congregation. We love seeing the vision for ministry that this church has. To be able to see you as a self-governing church reaching this community is just a blessing. And we're so privileged to be an extension of your ministry in the United Arab Emirates. I stood on here a couple of years ago and shared with you that the UAE is a unique country in the world. Uh, It's about 10 million people live there. The most popular city that you're probably familiar with is Dubai. Um, 10 million people live there. 90% of the population, though, are expatriates. They're people coming from some of the least reached parts of the world, coming from India, Pakistan, Iran, Nigeria, Ghana, the Philippines, as well as other Western countries. They're coming there to work, to make money, so they can set themselves up in their home countries for their future. We moved there in December 2017, where I did a one-year church planting residency. And then at that point in time, the Lord opened up a unique opportunity for my wife Laura and I, as well as another pastor of the church. You see, our church, Redeemer Church Dubai, that I was on staff at, partnered with one of its church plants, Redeemer Church of Alain, in order to send their pastor to Kuwait to plant a church in Kuwait City, which meant that we moved on May 1st this last year about an hour and a half into the desert to Alain. Alain is an interesting place because it is, in many ways, the cultural capital of the UAE. Dubai is known for tourism and for its glitz and its glamour. Alain is where the Emirati people really look at it as their own home. This is because there's a lot of these palm oases there, right? So picture yourself, it's the mid-1900s, there's not a lot of electricity, it's 120 degrees, there's not a lot of water. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the places where there's these natural springs, and that is a place like Alain. So in many ways, Alain is the cultural capital of the UAE, and yet... Even though there are churches that are allowed to meet, there is only one evangelical church in the entire city. It's a city of about three-quarters of a million people. And so Redeemer Church of Dubai in 2017 planted Redeemer Church of Alain. And about two years later, we're privileged to see that it's grown to be about 120 to 140 people. We have members coming from all over the world. Uh, We have folks who are from America who are there intentionally working. We also have people who are from Ghana, 
working in the labor camps in Nigeria. We have people from the Philippines, people from India, people from Egypt. We would love to see more and more nations represented in our body. It's beautiful to be able to see the way the gospel unites us together. The way that we do church is very similar to the way that Fishers does church. Uh, We preach the same gospel. Because it's a multi-ethnic church and because there are so many expats, the language in which we even do ministry is in English for the most part. We preach the same gospel. We sing many of the same songs. We preach the same Bible. We read from Scripture. We pray together. The way that we do church is very similar here. And yet, the way in which we do outreach and evangelism is kind of unique. For example, Laura and I have taken up Bollywood dancing a little bit. We were privileged to place second in a dance contest. Yes, it was a pity vote, but nonetheless, second place is second place. So we've taken up Bollywood dancing in order to reach our neighbors and to connect with our neighbors back in Dubai. I've taken on some new fashion tips from the Emirati people. These are our neighbors in Alain, where we had dinner with them right before we flew back to the United States. And yes, that man did take that off of his head and give it to me. I have some of his hairs left as a souvenir, which is kind of gross. We've also been able to introduce our Iranian friends to both sets of parents. And maybe even better than introducing them to both sets of parents, that's my mom there on the right. We've also, if you can see right here, we've been able to introduce them to Little Debbie and oatmeal cream pies. They asked, the mother asked her, she doesn't speak English, she asked, is this healthy? And we said, no, it's not. It's about the worst thing you can have. We're so thankful for this church. We're so thankful for the privilege of being sent out from this church as I step into the dark. We love this church and are very grateful to be an extension of your ministry in the UAE. Please keep praying for us. Uh, We're working in the church among people who primarily come from Christian backgrounds and outside the church, people who are from some of the hardest to reach places in the world. So pray for us. Pray against discouragement. Pray for fruit. Pray that God would draw the nations to himself. Well, speaking of the nations, as we've spent this last week in the U.S. celebrating our country's history and the way that God's worked in our country, this morning I want to take time to zoom out and to look at Revelation 5, which we've already read, and to look at the global scope of the gospel, to look at the worth of the Lamb and the worship of the nations. And so for the remainder of my time this morning, we're going to be walking through this passage, looking at really four questions. The first, who is worshiping in our passage? The second, who is being worshipped? The third, why is he being worshipped? And the fourth, and this is the one that we'll spend the most time on, what does this mean for missions? What, What does Revelation 5 mean for missions especially? So before we jump in, let me pray and ask God to help. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to be here this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, that as we see the beauty of Jesus, we would delight in you this morning, and we would want to see others delight in you as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, who's worshiping in this passage? Well, I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at the passage quite a bit, especially this first part, jumping around. The first thing we see is that there's an awful lot of people and an awful lot of beings worshiping. Look at verse 8. 
And when he had taken the scroll, we'll come back later and see who that is. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. We see here four living creatures. These are are special angels who likely represent the created order. So they're special angels before the throne of God. They have faces like an ox and a lion and an eagle and a man. And, And I think what they represent is they represent all of the created beings who are there before the throne of God praising God. And then we see 24 elders. And these 24 elders likely represent all of the redeemed humanity, the people of God from all ages. So these are people who Jesus has paid for. He's purchased their debt by his blood, and he's brought them into his kingdom. And so we have representatives. We have these elders, and we have these special angels on the inner circle of the throne. But we also have more people worshiping. Look at verse 11. It moves from representation to personal worship. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. So you have, picture the scene with me. You have the center being the throne. Around that, you have these 24 elders and these four living creatures. And around that, you have a myriad, thousands upon thousands of angels. Now, we like to think that angels are sweet, baby-faced beings with little wings who have hearts. That's not who these angels are. When we see angels in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they are terrifying. When a human encounters an angel, usually they fall on their face in awe. In awe because of their unworthiness, and they even are tempted to worship this angel. These are terrifying warriors. And here we have thousands upon thousands of mighty angels gathered around the throne singing praises to the one who sits on. Imagine. Imagine the sound of that. But it goes even bigger. Look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them. Every creature in all of creation is gathered before the throne singing God's praises. This includes people from every tribe and tongue and language that we see in Revelation 7. This includes every animal in the sea. This includes the whole creation there before the throne, worshiping the one who sits on it and the Lamb. This is not only global worship, this is cosmic worship. We see the natural world and the spiritual world praising God. So, That's who is worshiping, which leads to our next question. Who is being worshiped? Well, the one who sits on the throne is God, the Father. We know that because Revelation 5 follows Revelation 4. And in Revelation 4, the one who sits on the throne is described in Old Testament terms. You see thunder and lightning, just like at Sinai when Moses was given the law. You see precious jewels. You see uh, different flashes of thunder. You see all of this imagery, rainbow, fire, to leave us doubtless that there's none other than God Almighty on the throne. In Revelation 4, though, he's by himself. In Revelation 5, he's joined by someone else, the Lamb who is slain. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God 
sent out into all the earth. And he, the Lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Who is this Lamb? He's none other than the Son of God. He's the Lion of Judah, the offspring of David, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can ascend to the throne and take the scroll from the Father. So the reader should ask, why is he being worshipped? Revelation 4 has already given us reasons why God the Father is being worshipped. Look at Revelation 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The Father is praised for his holiness. He's praised for his eternality. And then look at 4, verse 11. Worthy of you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God the Father is being praised for his creation and his authority. So when we roll into chapter 5, we're not surprised that the Father is being worshipped. The question is, why is the Lamb being worshipped? Well, look at verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. You're able. You are worthy. You, you have the qualifications. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Only the lamb is qualified to take the scroll. Why? Well, because he was slain. He was slain, and yet he is standing as though he had been slain, which means he's conquered death. And through his death, he has purchased a people for God. He's paid their debt. He's been able to draw them to himself, and having purchased them, he's made them a kingdom. He's allowed for them to be part of God's kingdom willfully and joyfully, and he's given them the job of worship and guarding right worship, a kingdom of priests to our God. And then he's given these people authority to reign on the earth. The lamb has conquered death himself and is being worshipped because of his unique qualification. Only Jesus has done this. Only he is worthy of this worship. The lamb is worthy of worship because of his self-giving sacrifice that sets God's people free to enjoy him and to delight in him forever. So, having quickly, very quickly, unpacked that text, at a high level, I want to spend the rest of our time just drawing out some implications for missions. How does this text inform the way that we think, the way that we pray, the way that we go, the way that we give? How does this text inform the way that we participate in missions? And I have three implications from this passage. The first is that the death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation for missions. The death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation. Apart from this reality, missions would not be possible. There are many people in the world who want to cross from one country into another country that has great need in order to bring earthly benefits. Maybe it's going to Sudan and digging wells to provide clean water. Maybe it's going to Thailand to fight sex trafficking. Maybe it's going to Kenya for microfinancing to allow for farmers to be able to 
grow crops in a way that provides for their families. These are good things to do. In fact, I live in a country, the UAE, where the reason we're able to have churches is because in the 1950s, Christian medical workers came to the country before there was oil, before there was glitz and glamour, and they built hospitals. They built hospitals that allowed for hundreds of thousands of people to have access to modern medicine and saved lives. That earned the government favor. So the government looks on Christians in an honorable way and has granted us the permission to meet freely for worship. So meeting earthly needs is good. We care about suffering. But that's not the foundation for our mission. That's not the foundation of missions. Because the world can go and can give people a better earthly life. We, only the church, can go and give people that which will lead to a better eternal life. Only the gospel frees people from the chains of sin that leads to hell and allows for them to enjoy God forever. Missions stands or falls based upon whether it's built upon the foundation of the gospel. You see, the message of gospel is the content of our preaching. It's the content of our proclamation. It's what we're there to do, is to tell people the gospel. How did this redeemed humanity get there before the throne? Think about it. Revelation 5. There's people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around the throne. How'd they get there? Well, what Paul says in Romans 10 is someone preached to them. Someone went out and preached the good news to them. The way that your neighbor in Fishers or the way that the lost in the UAE are going to get to heaven is someone preaching to them. The message of the gospel is the content of what we speak. We don't preach ourselves. We don't merely preach a better life. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone transfers people from one kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That alone gives people the hope that they need. And if the message of the gospel is the content of our proclamation, the purchase of the gospel is our confidence for proclamation. The purchase of the gospel is why we can have the security and the assurance that we will not go and preach in vain. You see, Jesus has purchased a people. He has, past tense. There are people that Jesus has died for. And as we go out, we preach the gospel, trusting that the Lord will draw those people to himself. Jesus has set people free. And so when we preach, it's not up to us. We go and we go faithfully. We can preach to the people who are the hardest. The people who, and if you imagine that person who's the farthest off from the kingdom, we can have confidence that God will work through the preached word to draw his people to himself. That worked for the Apostle Paul. That works for us in Fishers. And that works for us in Alain still today. Just look at Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain, and by your blood you've ransomed a people for God. We go in confidence because Jesus has conquered death and has ransomed a people to himself. So that's implication number one. The death and resurrection of Christ is the foundation for missions. Implication number two is that the worth of Christ the worthiness of Christ is the fuel for missions. This is important. We can't overlook this. At the end of the day, 
missions runs on the fuel of Jesus Christ and his glory. Just imagine with me, um, and I'm not a car guy at all, but imagine if you had a regular old car that ran on unleaded 87 gasoline. Now, I checked this illustration with a very reliable source, my father-in-law, when I was riding in the car, who's a gearhead. And I asked him, all right, what would happen if you tried to put unleaded diesel fuel into an unleaded gas engine? I mean, we've all seen the commercials with those like Volkswagen uh, diesel cars that get like 1,000 miles per gallon on diesel fuel. What if you thought, you know what? I want to get 1,000 miles per gallon. So next time I'm at the pump, I'm just going to pump this into my Honda Odyssey minivan. What would happen? Well, it's true. Diesel is more efficient than unleaded gasoline. But not if you have a gas engine. You will get zero miles per gallon if you try and put diesel fuel into a gas engine. Diesel needs the right context in which to drive a car. There are many reasons why people go from one country to the next country. You might go because you love adventure and because you have the time, you got the money, let's go ahead and do it and let's try and get into missions that way. You might go because you think that this is what the really spiritual people do, is they, they don't just stay in the comfortable United States, they go over there. You, you might go because you genuinely love the lost and you genuinely want to see the lost saved. Now, some of these are good motivations. I can tell you, those who go over are not more spiritual than those who stay. In some places, fishers, in some ways, fishers is a harder context than where I am. You can go for a lot of different reasons. But at the end of the day, your reason needs to be the worth of Christ. That's why we participate in anything in life. I mean, let's just take love for the lost as an example. Love for the lost seems like a great motivating factor, right? We're burdened by the fact that there are billions of people going to hell. But here's the thing. If that's the primary reason, if that's the chief reason why you're going to do hard things, you will not last. You won't. And you know why that is? Because the lost are not very lovely. They're not. I mean, it can be easy to see pictures of people from other countries and, and kind of glamorize it and think, oh man, isn't it sweet they get to spend time with those? But but how do you love the husband who's working away from his wife back in their home country and he's cheated on her more times than he can remember? How do you love the woman who is so arrogant and so proud that she won't even acknowledge her Filipino server at a restaurant and she demands to speak with the manager because she's from the right ethnicity? How do you love the person who's untrustworthy with your kids and who you wouldn't leave them alone in the same room? How do, you how do you love the husband who, because his religion allows it, has taken multiple wives and abuses both of them? The lost are not very lovely because the lost are sinners. And sin is not lovely. Sin is ugly. So how do you love those people? You're not going to do it in your own strength. And you're not going to do it by chiefly trying to find something lovely in them. You love those people by being saturated with the love for Christ. Jesus is the only one who is lovely enough and will never disappoint us. Jesus won't cut us off on the road, driving down the road. 
Jesus won't live a life that we're embarrassed of or ashamed of. Jesus will captivate us with his glory and his beauty. And so when we go because we love him and treasure him and want him to be seen as glorious, you know what we get? We get love for the lost thrown in. Why? Because we remember the way that we too were once enemies of God. We too were unlovely. Titus 3 says that we were slanderers, backbiters, haters of men. We were ugly, and Jesus, through his beauty, made us beautiful. And the same gospel that gives us life and gives us new beauty in Christ has the power to give even the ugliest sinner life as well. So when we go because we love seeing Jesus exalted in the lives of sinners, that is fuel for mission. That allows for us to endure. And this leads to our final implication. The worship of Christ is the goal of missions. The worship of Christ is the goal of missions. As Christians, our goal is not chiefly, again chiefly, the foundational goal, the main reason we do it. Our goal is not chiefly to see the nations saved. We do want to see the nations saved. We pray for that. We fast for that. We long to see that. But that's a secondary goal. That goal is subordinate to something else. Our goal is to see Jesus exalted and displayed as glorious among the nations. As sinners turn from sin and find their life in Christ. John Piper has written one of the most powerful sentences on missions that I'm aware of. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Revelation 5 reminds us that the salvation of the nations, which we so desperately long to see, is for the sake of displaying the glory of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to see people find their life in Jesus and show him to be worthy of their life. This means that we don't only, the fact that the worship of Christ is is the goal of missions, this means that we don't only want to see people converted. Because worship is not just simply something we sing. Worship is all of life. Worship is the thoughts when you bring them in submission to Christ. Worship is acts of kindness when done in the name of Christ or the love of Christ. Because we don't merely want to see the nations converted. We want to see them worship, which means we care about glorifying God through the conversion of the nations. And we care about glorifying God through the sanctification of the nations. So we don't merely want to see that cheating husband believe in Jesus. We do. We pray for that. We want to see him believe in Jesus and then turn from his sin and practice reconciliation and purity with his wife. We don't merely want to see that arrogant woman believe in Jesus. We want to see her believe in Jesus and then show the supremacy of Christ by counting others more significant than herself. By going low because Jesus is her chief treasure. We don't merely want to see the untrustworthy man believe in Jesus. We want to see him believe in Jesus and then demonstrate his faith through his integrity. We don't merely want to see the polygamous husband 
believe in Jesus. We want to see him believe in Jesus and then train his sons what it means to be a one-woman man. In all of that, Jesus will be displayed as the chief treasure of their lives, and his worship will be seen both in their conversion and in their ongoing daily trust and obedience to him. Because the worship of Christ is the goal of missions, we want to see people worship Jesus with every aspect of their lives. Did you see that from Revelation 5? Every creature in all of creation and all that is within them. If that's true of missions, then I do want to ask you this morning, is that true of your life? Is that true of you? The, these, these implications that are drawn out, here's the secret, guys. Missions is not all that unique. Most of what missions is, is doing what we do here, doing it over there. <laughs> it looks a little bit different, but the motivation, the heart, the desire, all of that is similar. And so as you look at your own life, is the gospel the center of what you do? Is it the foundation for who you are? When you, when you speak to your friends or your coworkers, are you known by your faith in the gospel? When someone comes and asks for advice, do you give them what the world would give them or do you give them the gospel? Do you, are you motivated by the worth of Christ? As you go about your daily life here, do you think about the beauty of Jesus? Is that the reason why you do things? And then do you want to see people truly and genuinely worship Jesus? If, if I were to look at your life and say, okay, what, what's your goal? What's your objective here? The way that you parent. Do you parent to see your kids become worshipers of Christ? The way that you interact with your neighbors and your coworkers. Do you want to see people become worshipers of Christ? The Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And guess what the chief end of missions is? To see the nations glorify God and enjoy him forever. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We go because we want to see worship happen. And so whether you're here or whether you're there, we all participate in delighting and upholding the worth of Christ. I hope that affects the way that we pray, whether we go, whether we send, whether we give, is to see the nations delight in Jesus. So at the end of the day, we can say with all of creation in Revelation 5, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And you have made them kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus, worthy are you, worthy is the lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. We want to see people in Fishers, in Indianapolis, in the UAE, and in all of the nations gather together to sing those words. Because Jesus is worth it. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have done that in our lives, Lord, and that you would free us to be able to see that done in the lives of others. Lord, use us, use this church, we pray, 
And I pray that, Jesus, you would make your name famous in fishers and to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.